a confidence man or a con man, as they're called, gains your confidence in order to rip you off. And U.S. history is full of con men, but none quite as notorious as Frank Abagnale. For five years, Frank Abagnale passed off two and a half million dollars worth of bogus checks. He avoided capture by roaming around the country, assuming different identities. Posing as a Pan Am airline pilot, Frank flew over a million miles to 26 countries. He taught sociology one semester at BYU. He was a resident pediatrician at an Atlanta hospital. He forged a degree from Harvard University and worked as a lawyer for the Attorney General of Louisiana. In 1969, Frank Abagnale was arrested and sentenced to 12 years in prison, but his time was cut short because he agreed to help the FBI solve some financial scams. Today, Frank Abagnale runs a company that specializes in fraud prevention. In 2002, his story was made into a movie entitled, Catch Me If You Can. But Frank Abagnale is not the first confidence man in history to have a story with a happy ending. In Joshua chapter 9, we run into a group of con men. Men from Gibeon gained the confidence of the Israeli leaders. Didn't they con them? Through a deliberate and an elaborate ruse to enter a peace treaty. You see, the Gibeons were crafty, but their story wouldn't have had a happy ending if it hadn't been for the integrity of a Hebrew named Joshua. Joshua was a person of influence, and this morning we're going to learn that people of influence keep their promises. We're studying an influential time in history. A nation had been born. Israel had crossed the Jordan River and began a military campaign to take the land that God had promised their forefathers hundreds of years earlier. God began by engineering a supernatural victory over the walled city of Jericho. Jericho served notice to the surrounding nations that God was was coming and victory was going to be won and it spread the fear of Israel among the Canaanites. Next, the Israelis took Ai, After an initial defeat caused by their secret sin, Israel dealt with that sin. And God led the army to another decisive victory. Influential times make for influential people. And we've been noting as we've gone through Joshua and through these military campaigns, we've been noting the habits of influential people. They make preparation. They seize opportunities. They overcome their limitations. They settle their allegiances. They face foes and they admit failures. Well, here in chapter 9, we see that they also, people of influence, keep their word. This morning, we're going to go verse by verse through the chapter, and then we're going to return to our main point, people of influence keep promises. Verse 1 tells us, And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, the West Bank, in the hills and in the lowland, and in all the coasts, of the great sea toward Lebanon. Now here's a geography lesson for you. Canaan land was laid out in three regions. Just west of the Jordan River, the terrain rose sharply. The central highlands contained the hills of Judea and Samaria. Go west a little of those central hills and you found pastures and lowlands. Further west in the land sloped off 
toward the Mediterranean coast. And across this diverse landscape live six nations, all steeped in idolatry and in occult religion and in sexual perversions. We're told the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And when they heard about Israel's victories, they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. Now normally, these six city-states, they hated, they opposed, they fought each other. These were like the Hatfields and McCoys. This was like Parkview and Brookwood. This was like the Bulldogs and the Yellow Jackets. And yet the Israeli threat loomed so large it caused these cities to lay aside their hostilities and their suspicions and to join forces. But it was too late for Gibeon. You see, they were the next city on the chopping block. They were the town just west of Ai. The Gibeonites were already in the line of fire. They had a target on their back. They had to come up with their own separate strategy to avoid annihilation. And they did. If you can't conquer them, just con them. Verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily or deceptively and went and pretended to be ambassadors. The Gibeonites, in true Frank Abagnale fashion, they orchestrate an elaborate fraud to trick Israel. And they took old sacks on their donkeys Old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. They disguised themselves as if they'd been on the road for months. You know, it takes a long time for sandals and wineskins to wear out. It looked as if they had come from a far country rather than from just down the street. They had even stocked their chuck wagon with moldy bread. Verse 6. And they went to Joshua to the camp of Gilgal, and they said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. You see, the Gibeonites had understood God's orders to the Hebrews better than the Hebrews had. For Israel was to take no prisoners. They were on a mission from God to seek and destroy all the land's inhabitants. You see, the men of Gibeon knew that a good neighbor strategy wouldn't work. Thus, they pretended to be a delegation from a far distant land. We're told, then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, not knowing they were really Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? Notice these men of Israel were initially suspicious. Evidently, it was a sanctified suspicion. Maybe even some discernment from God. Hey, always be careful when you get that check in your spirit. Do you know what I'm talking about? Often the Holy Spirit raises a red flag in our hearts. We're faced with a decision and a warning light goes off on that inner dashboard. Hey, always pay attention. To that check in your spirit. It brings to mind Colossians chapter 3 verse 15. There we're told, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. The word rule there literally means to umpire. 
you know, like a baseball umpire who calls you safe or calls you out. We need to listen to God's peace. It'll help us make decisions. Hey, walk with the Lord. Enjoy his rest. But when that peace gets interrupted, be careful. Deception may be on the horizon. We ignore the checks in our spirit and these spiritual warning lights to our own peril. They're often God's way of alerting us to danger. But the Gibeonites, they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? And so they said to him, and here the Gibeonites, they lie through their teeth. They tell a whopper. They say, From a very far country your servants have come. Because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. To Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Notice as part of their ruse, they make mention of Israel's earlier victories. But they say nothing of Ai and Jericho. See, if they'd come from a long distance, they wouldn't have known of Israel's most recent triumphs. This is why they want Joshua to think that they're ignorant of the local news. In verse 11, they continue their spiel. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey, and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. In other words, they want to sign a peace treaty. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it's dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled with were new, and see, they are now torn. And these, our garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. They even staged their con with supporting props. But here is Israel's critical mistake. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. How many of our problems can be traced back to not seeking the Lord for his counsel? You've got to believe that if Joshua had only prayed about the matter, that God would have spoken to him, God would have exposed the deception and would have guided him. You know, it's one thing for an anxious batter to miss the signal that his third base coach is flashing to him. But it's much worse when he ignores the coach completely, and that's what Joshua had done. Joshua fails because he failed to ask the counsel of the Lord. And why is it that 3,500 years later, there are times when we also make the very same mistake? We get a little too confident, don't we? We we lean too far on our own understanding. It seems right to us. Oh, it seems good to us. Well, beware. Fail to seek the Lord, and you too will eventually get burned. Isaiah 28, verse 16 gives us good advice. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Take your time. Check it out. Seek the Lord. Never make a decision without first consulting God's counsel. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 is a guiding light here. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Step up and trust God. Step back and check yourself. Then step out and act on His word and God will step in and provide you the direction you seek. Well, 
Here Joshua makes a mistake. He leans on his own understanding. Verse 15. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. Joshua and Israel made a promise. They even sealed it with an oath. In essence, Joshua gave them his word. And here is today's question. What is the worth of your word? Are your promises trustworthy? Verse 16. And it happened at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Eventually, the truth always comes out, doesn't it? Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. I mean, the Gibeonites had feigned a three-month trip. In reality, they lived three days away, just a weekend's walk from Gilgal. Israel had been scammed. I I won't forget the Sunday night when a family came to our church. They said they were headed from Georgia to Tennessee when their car broke down. Some of you may have been here that night. The next day, I I heard on the Clark Howard show, uh, the same group described as local con men. Apparently, the Gibeonites have not gone away. They're still with us. And now their cities, he tells us, were Gibeon, Chepharah, Beeroth, and Kiroth Jerayim. On our last trip to Israel, Kathy and I had lunch in Kiroth Jerayim. And far from moldy, the bread there is actually delicious. It is. I love the food in Israel. In fact, we're going again November the 29th. We've got a spot open for you, by the way. Well, verse 18, but despite the con, the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. The Israeli leaders had made a promise. They had even invoked the name of God to keep the promise. They had given their word to Gibeon. And at the end of the day, what do any of us have but our word? You see, despite the deception, a vow is still a vow. And the Israeli leaders were men of their word. Even though they'd been lied to, even though they'd been hoodwinked into taking the vow, the Israelis were still determined to honor their promise. Hey, their word and their integrity were obviously high on their list of priorities. I think of Ecclesiastes 5, verse 5. It teaches us the importance of a promise. There we're told, pay what you have vowed. For better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Perhaps you work for a Gibeonite. Your employer has promised you certain wages. He actually laid out a promotion schedule when he hired you. Sadly, the raises have never materialized. Maybe you do business with a Gibeonite. Oh, he claims to be fair and honest, but you've noticed that he cuts corners and that he mistreats and misleads clients. What do you do? Do you break ties or do you fulfill your obligations? Hey, could it be you're married to a Gibeonite? I mean, she pretended to be something that she was not. He was disguised before the wedding. The relationship has become moldy. Like the Gibeonite sandals, your love for each other has worn out. I mean, what do you do with a Gibeonite? 
Or maybe your kids are starting to act like little Gibeonites. I mean, when you vowed loyalty to their mom and promised the kids you'd be there for them, you had no idea how crazy life could get, how tough it would be to raise a kid. You feel like you've been conned. Now what do you do? Hey, your promise was based on a set of assumptions. But now that new information has been revealed, now that your circumstances have changed, have you reneged on your promise? Here's the question. How valuable is your word? Pastor David Jeremiah writes, Integrity is keeping a commitment even if the circumstances when I made the commitment have changed. Now, I'm not saying that every promise we make or every agreement we enter should be seen as permanent and irrevocable. At times, there are legal or moral or biblical justifications that release us from our obligation. One example is Matthew chapter 5. There Jesus says that if a spouse commits adultery, breaks the trust in the marriage, then the offended spouse can dissolve the union and can move on. There are some situations, apparently, that are so egregious that recourses are provided. But evidently, a scam, even on the scale of Gibeon's con, wasn't one of them. For Joshua went on and kept his word. Booker T. Washington tells an interesting story in his book, Up From Slavery. He talks about a slave from Virginia who was, sold by, or who was told by his owner that he could purchase his freedom. Well, the slave moved to Ohio where he was able to get a good job and be able to save some money. In fact, he still owed $300 to his owner when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by Abraham Lincoln. I mean, suddenly, this former slave was free. He had been relieved of his debt. He had no more legal obligation. And yet the story goes, he still went on and earned the $300, and even journeyed all the way back to Virginia to pay his owner. And when asked why, he said this, I gave my word, and I've never broken my word. I couldn't enjoy my freedom until I had fulfilled my promise. This morning, my point is not obligation. I don't know whether you're obligated. I don't know about whether you're legally or expected or socially obligated. I don't even know about your lack of obligation. I don't know about that. I just want to know how important is your word. In your estimation, is your word worth keeping? Is your promise worth fulfilling? How do you want people to see your word? Hey, just because keeping a promise is an inconvenience to you, Just because it causes an unnecessary hassle for you. Just because it adds to you some responsibility or creates for you some embarrassment or costs you some money or makes your life uncomfortable or triggers a complication or initiates some complexity for your life. None of these excuses give you the right to ignore the promise you've made. You see, some folks are always looking for loopholes. I call them squirmers. They're always trying to wiggle their way out of the obligations that they've made for themselves. How often have you heard these statements? But I'm not legally bound. It was just a conversation. I didn't sign a contract. 
They have no signature. I didn't really mean what I said. Hey, read the clause in the fine print. Ever heard this kind of a comment? They can't get blood out of a turnip. Why would they come after me? They'll go for the deeper pockets. As Christians, we are bound by God to be true to our word. You know, for years I've played this game with my kids. I think I told you about it a couple weeks ago. Guess the money in dad's wallet and it's yours. This is high drama. This is great suspense in our family. Once I sold a car and I had several thousand dollars in my wallet and and I came home and I rolled the dice and I played the game and, and thankfully the kids came up short. As a matter of fact, I've never had them guess right until the other night. The other night it happened. We were at Brewster's and Matt guessed $84. And I knew he was close. But I no, it can't be. And so I pulled my wallet out and I started counting 82, 83, 84. He was right. It was $84. And for the first time in Adam's family history, Dad's integrity was tested. Would I cough up the cash or would I come up with an excuse? Here's the answer. Mac Adams is now $84 richer. I admit I was tempted to backtrack. Hey, I didn't think the Mac Adams fund needed an $84 donation, especially after I'd bought him free ice cream. But you see, a promise tests a man's mettle. It reveals his character and his honesty and his integrity and his commitment and his follow-through. Will he keep on or will he cop out? Hey, financial capital is measured by net worth and your range of investments. But social capital is measured by trust and honesty and integrity. And guys, all meaningful relationships, social, business, otherwise, are built on trust. Relationships are not ultimately built on personality or on persuasiveness or on your sense of humor or on your pleasantness. My respect for you boils down to one thing. Whether or not you'll keep your promises. Do you do what you say? People of influence do what they say. Now back to verse 18. At first, the men of Israel, they don't appreciate their leader's desires to honor a promise. And all the congregation, we're told, complained against the rulers. You know, sometimes a show of integrity isn't appreciated by people who are short on integrity. The leaders are going to make it clear that this is about principle, not about their advantage. He goes on, he says, Then all the rulers said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. Apparently, they lived at a time when a man's word was his bond. Evidently, at this point in history, promises were taken seriously. Where have those days gone? Guys, it's men that have changed, not the importance of our word. He goes on, and the ruler said to them, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. 
The Gibeonites will cut wood for the burning of the sacrifices. They will carry water for the washing of the priests. They will serve in the tabernacle as lumberjacks and as water boys. But they'll live. For that's what they were promised. Then Joshua called for them and he spoke to them saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell near us? Now therefore you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. And so they answered Joshua and said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. Now, I'm not advocating dishonesty, but for me, it's hard to fault these Gibeonites. In a sense, their con was an act of faith. I mean, they took seriously God's commandment to the nation Israel, and they responded accordingly. If they hadn't have come up with this ruse, they probably would have been slaughtered. And evidently, God wasn't too upset with their deception either. For later on in the history of the nation, God honors Israel's covenant with Gibeon. In fact, if you fast forward 400 years and read 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1, here's what we're told. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. Notice this, four centuries later, King Saul will break Joshua's treaty with the Gibeonites, and God will still bring judgment on Israel as a result. Apparently, God honored the covenant Joshua made with Gibeon as well. Now, chapter 9 concludes, So Joshua did to them, and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel, so that they did not kill them. And that day, Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation, and for the altar of the Lord, in the place which he would choose, even to this day. And this wasn't as bad a plight as you might think. The occupations of woodcutter and water carrier kept the Gibeonites close to God. Woodcutters and Water boys were privileged to assist in worship. The Gibeonites would forever hang out near God's presence. Perhaps they would catch glimpses of God's glory. It may not have been such a bad gig after all. In fact, look in the book of Joshua. And you'll see that later, the city of Gibeon, of all places, is designated by God to be a Levitical city. Apparently, priests and Levites and other servants of God also made Gibeon their home. They lived right there among the woodcutters and the water boys. When Joshua sentenced the Gibeonites to these menial jobs of chopping wood and carrying water, they never complained. They were just thankful to live. The Gibeonites humbly embraced their role as servants of God. You know, over time, Joshua's vow to Gibeon, it may have caused Israel a problem or two, perhaps an inconvenience here or there. But it was influential in ways that history alone could measure. Because Joshua kept his promise, these lying Gibeonites were transformed 
into some of God's most faithful servants. Pastor Rob is new to his job. He's taken over a Calvary Chapel that has existed now for several years. But already, Pastor Rob has earned my respect. You see, the church that he pastors is stretched financially. They, they rent this facility at top dollar. The previous pastor got the lease with some personal guarantees that he made. But now that that pastor's gone, Rob technically could walk away from the lease. I mean, he and his church no longer have a legal obligation. They could just leave the facility. Rob would save himself some hassles and the church a lot of money. But you know what? Pastor Rob plans to pay that rent and fulfill that lease. Rob told me that he wants the church to fulfill its obligations and to keep its promises and maintain its reputation in the community. To Pastor Rob, no amount of money is worth the church's integrity. And I predict that Pastor Rob will be an influential pastor for people of influence keep their promises. A foursome was on the golf course one day in the midst of a thunderstorm. The sky turned ominous. Rain started gushing from the heavens. Thunder clapped. The storm was growing in intensity. Suddenly, a lightning bolt struck the metal fence, and it lit up like a neon sign. That's when one of the golfers, he stopped. He looked up to heaven, and he shouted, Okay, okay, my five on the first hole was really a seven. Hey, God may not confront you in a thunderstorm, but God cares about your integrity. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, there Jesus taught his disciples, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. In other words, keeping promises has always been important. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, you need to keep your word. And yet Jesus takes it further. He says, but I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. In other words, to ensure honesty, the Hebrews developed this system of oaths. Swearing by a third party reinforced your commitment to the promise. You know, we do this today. We appeal to someone or something greater than ourselves. You see this on the Survivor show. You know, those contestants on Survivor, they, they try to weave alliances and they try to win each other's trust. And they do so by taking oaths. Well, I swear by my mother's blood. Or I'll swear on the Bible. And, of course, that sounds more trustworthy than, I swear on my survivor buff. I mean, that's kind of weak. The more at stake in the oath, supposedly, the more reliable the promise. This was the idea behind the Jewish oaths. Swearing by God's throne was a serious promise. God holds you accountable. Swearing by heaven, well, that's kind of a mid-level oath. You know, an angel holds you to it. Therefore, there's a little wiggle room for you. Well, swearing by your own head, well... You ever take, you know, 50-50 chance you'll fulfill that promise. That's how it worked. But this is why Jesus concluded. Forget about these oaths. Let your yes be yes. And your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. In other words, you shouldn't swear at all because you shouldn't need to. You should be a man or a woman of your word. 
Jesus is telling us, mean what you say and say what you mean. At the end of the day, guys, this is all we've got. This is all that we are. Life is not about our image or our appearance or our status. What folks think you may be may or may not be true. Your life is about your word, your integrity. How courageous are your convictions? Are you a promise keeper? If you can't be relied on, your influence will be minimal. Once people discover your duplicity, they'll care very little about what you have to say. And this is especially true for parents with children. Parents make promises that you don't keep and you'll undermine your own credibility. Kids hang on their parents' words. If they can't trust your promises, they won't respect your opinion, they won't listen to your counsel, and certainly they won't obey your commands. Once there was a husband who asked his wife why she no longer played cards with her girlfriend. She answered, she said, well, would you like to play with a cheater? The husband wondered which of the girlfriends had been cheating. Wow. He said, of course not. His wife replied, well, neither will my friends. I mean, integrity is doing the right thing for no other reason than it's the right thing to do. It's honesty with or without an advantage. Integrity does what's right whether it benefits benefits you or not. Whether anyone else knows or not. Whether another human being is watching or not. I want to close with a story. Tanner Munsey is a seven-year-old t-ball player from Wellington, Florida. On a close play, Tanner tried to tag a runner going from first to second. The umpire yelled out. Tanner shook his head. He told the umpire, he said, I never touched him. The umpire thanked Tanner for his honesty and changed the call. Two weeks later in another game, Tanner was playing shortstop. He scooped up a ball and he tried to tag the runner going from second to third. The same umpire yelled, safe. When Tanner walked back to his position, he was obviously upset. The umpire asked him what was wrong. Tanner said, I made that tag. The umpire immediately called the boy on third out. And of course, the opposing coach bolts from the dugout. He comes challenging the call. And the ump, after reporting Tanner's track record, he then said to the coach, when a kid is that honest, I'll give it to him. Here's my life's goal. To be that honest. I want folks to trust what I say. And a person of influence is true to their word. We honor God. And we earn each other's respect. By keeping our promises. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And for the story of the Gibeonites and Joshua's faithfulness, Joshua's integrity. May we, Lord, be that honest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.